It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 28th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The six-month-long ban on evictions ends this Friday, which means that some people who have been renting somewhere to live will be forced to leave their homes from Saturday onwards. The end of the ban on evictions is expected to result in thousands of people becoming homeless in the coming months. The issue, as you know, was the subject of heated debate last week, but the government won the argument, claiming that the problem, as bad as it will be in the coming weeks and months, would in fact only become worse and result in even more people becoming homeless if the ban was to be extended by 10 months up to the end of January next year. That was that. But this week, the opposition is gearing up for rounds two and three. Today, the Dáil will debate a Sinn Féin bill to extend the ban. The government will vote against that proposed legislation and then tomorrow it will face a motion of no confidence. That motion has been tabled by the Labour Party and the leader of the Labour Party, Vanna Backage, joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Your motion says that the government has failed to deliver on housing and health or prepare for the rising cost of living. If you win this vote on Wednesday, you'll force a general election. But do you accept that won't stop anyone from being evicted? And is it inevitable at this stage that evictions will start up again from Saturday? Well, Michael, good morning and thank you for inviting me on your programme. And as you've said, we've put down a motion of no confidence in government. That will be debated tomorrow. Indeed, the government have put down a counter motion to vote confidence in themselves, if you like. So that's the the technical formula. But essentially, we felt we had no choice but to do this. It's not something we do lightly. As you said, a motion of no confidence is is a serious uh, action to take by an opposition party. Indeed, it's over 20 years since a Labour motion of no confidence was voted was was taken in the doll. So it's something we certainly would not do lightly. But we believed we had no choice because this government has taken an unprecedented step in making a decision to lift the eviction ban from this Saturday, a deliberate and conscious decision that will expose 
many, many families and households to an immediate risk of homelessness from that date. And that's a really, a, a really massive step they've taken. And it was against expectations that they did it. Uh, they've been indicating to all of us in opposition for some months now that they would be, uh, that they were considering some sort of temporary extension of the ban. We'd all anticipated that would happen because we were all very conscious that over the last six months, the government had done nothing to, con- to plan for the contingency that when the ban was lifted, there would be many thousands of families and individuals facing homelessness. But given the margin that the government had last week, uh, it, it won that uh, vote uh, by 15 uh, votes last week. Uh, and you'd have to assume uh, that it'll be a similar result today and they'll vote down the Sinn Féin legislation. Uh, and if that is the case, is it not inevitable that evictions will start up again from Saturday? Well, first of all, you, you know, I've spoken with independent uh, members of the Dáil who voted, some of whom, as you say, voted with government last week. Uh, they have to- The independents have told me that as independents, the government cannot assume that they will vote the same way in the, vote, in the motion of no confidence tomorrow. And indeed, I've written formally to all independent TDs yesterday uh, asking them to mm. vote no confidence and reminding them that nobody who voted for an independent in the 2020 general election did so thinking that they were voting for evictions. But confidence or no confidence in in the government, uh, it won't do anything to stop evictions, will it? Uh, I mean, the ban will fall on Friday evening and evictions will start up again from Saturday. Well, what we've asked government to do is to change their minds. It's, to, it's not too late to reverse the decision, which, as I say, was an unexpected decision to lift the ban, to reverse that decision and to grant a, a temporary extension, a further temporary extension of, what not, let's not forget, is a ban just on no-fault eviction. So clearly all through the ban, landlords could evict tenants for non-payment of rent or for antisocial behaviour. But what we're asking for is a short extension of the no-fault eviction ban in order to put in place the very measures the government themselves say they're going to now start preparing. And let's not forget in last week's uh, motion which you know, the government put together, they put together a series of, of very much last minute measures. They cobbled together on foot of requests from the, some of the independents. You know, since, since then we've seen really serious concerns raised by some of the government's own people, by Minister Mary Butler saying that mm. she wasn't consulted on the measure about the Fair Deal nursing homes, that she feels that it's, it, it, it's flawed. Uh, we've heard concerns raised by others that it's, this, the government simply can't cannot provide the sort of necessary legislative backing, for example, for the right of first refusal scheme, you know, within a very short time frame. Mm. This will take time because this will need uh, new legislation. There's some measures that will require budgetary, you know, budgetary changes. So we're concerned that this is too little too late. And I think that many of the independents may be reflecting in the last few days that, you know, they haven't seen sufficient progress from government on these measures to be able to be confident in them. Let's okay. put it this way. Of course, you know, of course, of course, our primary concern is to stop people facing this cliff edge of homelessness mm. on Saturday. So we are appealing to government to adopt a different approach. And, you know, we've put forward a constructive proposal, I should say. I wrote to the Taoiseach indeed on the 16th of March in closing legislation that would have ex- allowed to ex- him to extend the eviction ban mm. on an evidence basis, only to lift it when we see four consecutive months showing a drop in homelessness figures. And we believe that would be a far preferable way to approach this rather than the very... Uh, and that's the gun that you're putting to the government's head, really, realistically speaking. Uh, either they accept that proposal or you table this motion of no confidence. And you're hoping that because uh, they're concerned uh, at the outcome of uh, that vote uh, that maybe they'll accept your proposal. 
Well, we haven't. I haven't even received a response. Yeah, but that's that's the logical but, but, part of the next part of the conversation. Uh, the, the, yeah. But look, look, Michael, I, I suppose mm. you know our, our purpose in pushing forward a constructive measure was based on the evidence we were getting from homeless charities and agencies who were telling us that an evidence base should be there who are telling us their concerns that the mm. government had done no modelling and I asked a parliamentary question on this and got a very clear reply the government had done no modelling it had no evidence on which it, it made the decision to lift the ban it appears to have been a very uh, very uh, last minute decision it was only after they had decided to lift the ban that the residential tenancies board released those very alarming figures showing that nearly 4,000 notices to quit were mm. issued to renters in the third quarter of last year alone. But the so government has explained why it doesn't want to lift the ban and uh, the poll in uh, the Business Post uh, at the weekend made for a very interesting reason, reading 46% in favour of ending the ban 36% against in support of the government's decision and 18% who don't know. So it's not clear cut in terms of public opinion is it? Well what's not clear cut is is, is, is the actual data, as I say, because government did no modelling of their own, because we simply don't have any sense that there was an evidence or rational basis for the government's decision. The government are telling us they made this decision to keep landlords in the sector because they were concerned that to lift the ban would have driven landlords out. That's not what we're hearing from landlords, and that's not evident from the Residential Tenancies Board data. What you know, And if the government were serious about incentivising landlords to stay in the sector, they would have put in place measures in the last six Okay. months while the ban was in place to encourage landlords to yeah, stay and, and indeed to plan for contingencies for those who were facing And they would seem reasonable arguments but uh, going back to my original question do you believe it is inevitable that evictions will start up again from Saturday? I very much hope not. I mean, I'm hearing every day from constituents in my own area in Dublin Bay South, but I know my colleague Jed Nash is hearing it uh, in, in his own constituency in Laos. Many of your listeners will themselves be in this position where they're receiving notices to quit and they have nowhere else to go in their own mm. community. Because this is not just about the fact of having an, evic- an eviction notice, which itself is... is, is and, and distressing enough. It's because there is such a chronic shortage of alternative homes for right. people to go to. I mean, mm. this is true at all levels, Michael. It's true for people on HAP. And I had a young mother contact me recently who she's on housing assistance payment on HAP. Uh, and she had to go through 300, 300 mm. uh, uh, t- um, uh, advertisements. For, the solution is supply. Everybody agrees. This this, absolutely mm. the solution is supply. Uh, and and you promised over the weekend that uh, <laughs> under a Labour Party government, uh, you'd build a a million houses in 10 years. Uh, Where did you get that figure from? Well, I I can break it down for you. What we said was we would provide a million homes over 10 years and this is the breakdown and it's based in fact on the government's own figures on housing need. Uh, The Taoiseach has admitted there is a chronic shortage, a shortfall of 250,000 homes currently in Ireland and the Housing Commission has said that the targets the government themselves have set are far too low and that we need more like 50,000 new builds a year. So we're saying 50,000 new builds a year and 50,000 deep retrofit and refurbishment of vacant, some of which will be vacant and unoccupied homes over the next 10 years, amounting to a million. Yes, it's an ambitious target. And I know many people had called for thought. It's not impossible. Uh, Is it possible? Oh, sorry, Mike. Yeah. Well, let's let's just address that. Of course, it's possible. We've seen the state pivot during COVID to do things that would have been formerly thought impossible. To see revenue commissioners over one weekend. What evidence? What evidence do you have that it is possible? What modelling have you done? 
well, let's put it this way. Labour in government with Jimmy Tully in the 70s provided 100,000 new homes. We see the Land Development Agency today saying they've identified capacity for 70,000 homes on state land. If we were to introduce the sort of aggressive recruitment and upskilling campaign for construction workers that we've seen done in other countries, we saw it done in Britain where they, where the Irish, where Irish labourers were brought over in large numbers to build the tube infrastructure in London, to build housing in Liverpool. Any of your listeners who spent time I'm there as I have living in London, will have seen what the Irish did in building Britain. So we've seen that scale of ambition in other countries. We've seen it here in the past. And it's that scale of ambition that is now needed to deliver on the chronic housing shortage. I, I thought the report from the Land Development Agency would make you roll back on this claim that a, a million houses could be built over 10 years because they're talking about 7,000 homes. Uh, but uh, they say that... Well, it would take 10 years to build 10,000 of them. Well, you know, we've been, we supported, I should say, the establishment of the Land Development Agency because in constructive opposition, we support measures that we believe will help a housing supply. We've been very disappointed, however, in the really serious delays in any Mm. sort of delivery by the Land Development Agency. But I did have calls for optimism, in fact, in their report, because what they've done is identified simply on existing public land capacity Mm. for building 70,000. And it shows what can be done when the will is there. What I don't agree with is their projection of uh, timelines. And again, you know, I've I've stood in... Yeah, because uh, they're talking about taking land off Horse Racing Ireland, off the Central Bank Mint, uh, Sandyford, the CIE, Bus Depot at Cunningham Road... uh, uh, there's okay, sites yes, that have yes. been identified in Dundalk and Drogheda uh, apart from elsewhere, but they're saying out of the 67,000 homes, you'd only deliver less than 10,000 in 10 years from now. You're saying in 10 years from now, you could build a million homes or at least 500,000 and yes, retrofit 500,000 empty homes. It can be done, Michael. They're, they're talking specifically about public land. But you've so no evidence of how it can be done. This is a number you've plucked out of the air, isn't it? No, it's not. I've just explained. It's based on the Housing Commission's own assessment of need. In fact, the Housing Commission went a little further and they said up to 60,000 units a year. Let's not forget the government's own target is very low. It's only 30,000. The government themselves admit that target is too low simply to address the need that's there. As I said, the Taoiseach himself has identified a really large, you know, a 250,000 shortfall currently to meet our existing need. And let's not forget, we're a country that has delivered a 5.3 billion budget surplus last year, the highest budget surplus across Europe. So it's not it's not the economy or resources that is holding back construction. It's a lack of ambition and it's an ideology that says we leave it to the private market. So our point in Labour is to say it's time for the state to step up, to use that budget surplus, to invest in delivering infrastructure at pace, rapidly. And I should say, Michael, again, you know, I've been meeting with IBEC, I've met with, with individuals in construction who are telling me construction technology has moved on. You can build off-site homes far more quickly now in factories and assemble and put and then assemble on site rather than the old model of construction. So you know there are ways we can do this, we can deliver this. We need to see ambition from government and an acknowledgement that the state has to step in to do it. When there is a shortfall, when, the, when we're seeing a slowdown in private construction, and that's really worrying. We saw a slowdown in, uh, in in commencements this year, and we're seeing a huge number of inactive planning permissions. And another thing I said at the weekend which actually wasn't picked up on so much was the need to introduce a new use it or lose it system because you know currently as you know as your listeners will be aware you can sit on planning permission for five years once it's granted in Dublin City Council alone there's 30,000 inactive planning permissions 
In other words, they've been through the planning process, uh, 30,000 homes with permission, and, and, develop, and the developers are sitting on those, on those uh, sites and not, uh, not, um, not starting construction. So we need to address that chronic issue as well, because that is clearly contributing to the slowdown in construction. Okay, uh, there were many of us uh, taken aback over the weekend uh, on Friday evening uh, at the government's announcement that it's going to hold a series of public discussions uh, on neutrality. Uh, and I was a, a little bit taken aback uh, that that wasn't mentioned in a leader's speech on Saturday. Uh, what's the Labour Party position on this? Well, the Labour position is very clear. We stand in support of Ireland's neutrality. We stand in support of the triple lock. And that's always been a long-standing policy of ours. We're very proud of Ireland's neutrality and of Ireland's role in peacekeeping. But of course, being militarily neutral does not mean we're politically neutral. And in my speech, I spoke very clearly about our position on Ukraine, um, where you know we have to stand with the people of Ukraine against the brutal and murderous assault on their democracy and their, uh, their national sovereignty by Russia and by Putin. So, you know, I've, I've addressed this many times and indeed we had a very very uh, good and stimulating debate on Sunday morning as well on international affairs and on Labour's position in support of the people of Palestine and our strong track record of standing against human rights abuse in countries like Iran and Syria and in Afghanistan where mm. we've seen an utter trampling of women's rights in particular but also of democratic rights and democratic uh, freedoms that we take for granted here. Will you oppose any steps to send Irish boys to the battlefield? Of course, I don't believe we should be fighting if we're in a, in a war in that sense. You know, we have a triple lock. We have a very proud tradition of our peacekeepers. Uh, you know, uh, I think everyone in Ireland is, is, is so proud of the role that I, the Irish Defence Forces have played in, uh, in peacekeeping missions abroad. But we absolutely support the tr- current triple lock position, which is constitutional position, in which, you know, I, you know, I, I, I should say, you know, the government are, uh, have said they'll open a discussion about neutrality. That's fine. But I think there's huge support across the country for our, our current 67% position. I think according to the last Irish Times poll on neutrality uh, but yeah. I mean there's huge support for your position on the evictions ban uh, but evictions are going to start up again from Saturday well, it's not too late. It's in government's gift. It's in government's gift and it's in the gift of the independents who support government. If they wanted to, they could extend the eviction ban, they could reverse the this really really indefensible decision that was made to lift the ban without any, any contingency planning. And it's not too late to do that. And I do think they owe it to those families and renters now facing this cliff edge of eviction uh, to, to change their minds and to and, and to extend the ban. Even a few short months okay. would buy them time to put in place the measures that they've said they'll put, put in place. But even in their own assessment, they can't start doing that until the 1st of May. And that's simply too late for many families who are facing eviction from Saturday. All right, well, the conversation will continue in uh, the chamber of uh, the Dáil today and over the course of uh, this week no doubt. Thank you indeed though for taking the time to be with us and to to discuss uh, this with us on the programme today. It's much appreciated. Uh, That's uh, the leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic. Michael Reed on LMFM. Ivana Backage may not have mentioned neutrality in her leader's speech, uh, but uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party has just told us uh, that despite uh, the government's public consultation on neutrality, that she 
and her party will oppose any move uh, to change Ireland's position. Let's uh, talk uh, about this series of talks, uh, discussions on neutrality. It will involve a number of forums that will take place at several locations around the country. They say that it won't solely be about neutrality, but they say that it, it will certainly cover neutrality and Ireland's current position and that it will give food for thought. Mark Price is co-chair of the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee. He's also one of the founders of the Irish Neutrality League and on the line with us. Mark, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You, were you taken aback uh, by this uh, announcement on Friday evening that the government intends to put this up for discussion? No, uh, no, Michael. I'm not taking it back. Kind of, it's it's predictable. Um, the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael leaders have, for some time, at least going back to 2015, uh, been trying various ways to uh, chip away at Irish neutrality and to create um, what they call to inform people, but which you could easily describe as being to confuse people uh, about neutrality and what it means. So it's not surprising. And their agenda has been clear for some time, um, Michael. And one of the main things they've been uh, saying, for Adker, for, for instance, recently came out again and said, um, Ireland is not at, um, politically neutral. Have you heard this expression? Mm-hmm. We're yeah. just militarily yeah. neutral. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is a very important distinction that's been made again and again. And when Pope, when pressed on this, for Adker says, says, we're not politically neutral, we're, we're on the side of the West we're on the side of democracy. Mm. And, uh, this Indeed, that was the position Ivana Bakic took uh, a moment ago and that we support uh, the Ukrainians, for example, just to use one example, but we won't be sending troops or weaponry. Yes, um, what's really going on, and of course you have to be careful here of paranoid overthinking and conspiracies and so on and so on, but like um, Phoenix was very good at this, I recommend. I'm not, a, I'm not selling the Phoenix, but I recommend their coverage of this um, in, the, in the latest issue. They report a talk given by the NATO Deputy Secretary, Mircea Joanna, who says that he spoke to Michal Martin in February uh, about the need to protect undersea fibre optic cables. Are you familiar with this story, Michael? Are your reader or your listeners familiar with this? Um, it's very much following the destruction of the Nord Stream mm-hmm. uh, pipeline in the Baltic, um, which not just Seymour Hersh and the New York Times, but now uh, German TV and others have now more or less confirmed that this was not done by the Russians. Why would they blow up their own pipeline? Um, but rather by a pro-Ukrainian group um, in whose interest it would be to, to have this. But this was, if you like, used as a reason to say that Ireland needs to develop its capability uh, in the Navy to protect these undersea cables. As the Phoenix says, this is just a canard. This is a, an excuse to promote a certain agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that most people in Ireland want uh, neutrality because they want the rule of law. And supporting the West rings very hollow when we think about the support of the West going back to the Iraq invasion and the use of Shannon Airport since then as a military logistical base 
for American um, activities in All the right. Middle East. Well, uh, um, they say that uh, when these discussions take place, when these forums are established, uh, that they want the right people in the room uh, to discuss this. Uh, but it, it seems from what I'm reading, there'll be a lot of hawks and not too many doves. Uh, they're talking about military figures and experts in international security and that type of, of thing. Uh, and they'll be sending out the message to people why we need to look at our neutral position. I, there's, a very, there's a familiar thing. I know you're familiar with this. Uh, where Irish people need to start taking responsibility and not, and not, you know, not feeling like we can always rely on our betters and our big brothers elsewhere to defend us against aggressors. Uh, I was on the radio the other day with some debating uh, against some chap, and he said, um, you know, Ireland needs to learn how to defend itself and stop uh, relying on other people to do this. Actually, Irish people. Uh, have said again and again that they want a rule of law and that means that they want a system whereby if they're going to be involved in military activities they want them to be agreed by the UN Security Council. Now the Coveney last year came out Simon Coveney came out and said well how can we be bound by the UN Security Council when you have Russia and China uh, uh, as permanent members therefore it will be impossible to you know, pursue our interests but we come back to this question of what, what they mean um, by democracy. And I, I think it's, it's not a problem to keep going back to Shannon. Uh, may I talk for a second about Shannon? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, um, there's a, a new book out, yep. uh, Michael, yep. um, by a guy called Quinn Slobodian um, called Crack Up Capitalism. And it's, it tells the story of free enterprise zones. The most famous ones in the world are Hong Kong and Singapore. And in this book, he traces how these free enterprise zones, um, and arguably the whole Brexit project was an attempt to turn the entire UK into a free enterprise zone, um, are ways of avoiding democratic accountability. So you can businesses can set up without having to worry about paying taxes or trade unions or uh, you know health and safety and so on. The first free enterprise zone in the world. Guess where that was? Do you know? No. Shannon Airport, okay. Shannon New yep. Free Trade Zone, and it's it is the site of the most democratically anti-democratic activity in Ireland, probably ever since two thousand and three. Okay, um, which is uh, you know this uh, under the radar, if you like, tacit support of U.S. imperialist international, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and everyone knows it, but nobody can say it. Um, this is a this is anti-democratic. Irish people don't want to be roped into other people's wars. And, it, it, and to go back for history, in 1914, uh, we, you know, we recently refounded a group called the Irish Neutrality League, and the original one was founded by James Connolly and others in Chauncey uh, Kelly and others, Arthur Griffith, way back in 1914, in opposition to the. Uh, the then attempt by the Irish political leaders, John Redmond, to involve us people in a war between great powers. And if you remember, the, uh, the banner outside Liberty Hall was neither King nor Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what Irish people want. They want to be part of a rules-based order, not to be taking sides with, quote, the West, or even, quote, democracy, when this democracy is quite clearly a movable feast. 
uh, and suits whatever interest of the of the great powers. Okay, but we've already taken a, a number of steps, and a, a number of people have uh, made comment on participation in PESCO or, or the EU battle groups, and as to whether that may have undermined Ireland's neutrality. It's interesting to see the Taoiseach over the weekend say we participate in PESCO, which is European Security and Defence. We participate in the European Defence Agency. We're a member of EU battle groups, so our neutrality needs to be seen for what it is in that sense. Uh, Now, uh, it seems that despite saying uh, when we were joining PESCO and uh, other uh, groups like that, uh, we were told uh, that it wouldn't undermine neutrality. Now it seems to be making the argument uh, that we are not, in fact, neutral. This is another argument, Michael, that um, hawks, as you mentioned, uh, there's a good word for, for military, so-called military advisors and analysts. Uh, they always say, oh, another argument is, you know, uh, uh, in addition to the one we're not, we're only militarily, we're not politically neutral, they go, well, we're not really neutral at all because of, because of these things. But, you know, this is just cynical. This is like, if you said, if you and I agreed that, well, we like freedom and democracy and, 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 and security, you know, as political ideals, but they're being compromised everywhere so let's just give up on them completely and just, you know, forget about trying to make the world a better place because these things have been compromised. So yes, our neutrality has been compromised, but really these arguments Tesco and EU battle groups, um, these are these have never been tested democratically. They other than the embarrassment of the involvement in the Sahal in Mali, uh, if you remember, mm. which actually turns out to be what we suspected. And again, I do, I do want to avoid, you know, conspiracy and all that. But EU battle groups in the Western Sahara, in the, in the Sahel, um, turn out to be fighting the, uh, the ongoing wars of French interests, French geostrategic mm-hmm. interests mm-hmm. in the region. Against terrorists, yes, absolutely. And mm-hmm. similarly with this Russian invasion, of course, yeah. this is an act of aggression uh, by Russia. Is, is, peace, is, is peacekeeping in the Lebanon even under question now, uh, given that it's no, a course? Of- no, because, I say why not, because Le- Lebanon and Congo, and by the way, Ireland has this actually brilliant reputation. Mm. There was a study done 25 years ago now where Ireland was one of only two countries that hadn't uh, had accusations of war crimes against its troops serving under the UN. Even UN peacekeepers from countries will do horrible things. Yeah. Soldiers will do horrible things in war situations. But Ireland has a brilliant reputation. And that UN involvement exemplifies that reputation because it was those actions were not on the side of... I mean, they, you could argue that, but mm. they were UN peacekeeping missions. You can have a world order. There mm. is, it is possible to have a UN, even with China and Russia on the Security Council. Um, this is what we're being asked to do in relation to Ukraine is a lot more complicated. Okay. Mark, this discussion is only just beginning and I'm sure we'll talk again, but we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Mark Price, co-chair of the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee and one of the founders of the Irish Neutrality League. Michael Reed on LMFM. Local small and medium enterprises may be interested in attending the ISMI Roadshow, which will be in the Glenside Hotel tomorrow morning in around this time. Starts at nine o'clock. Adam Weatherly, Learning and Development Manager with ISMI, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association, is on the line. Adam, what have you got to offer? Uh, good, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having us on. Um, 
Yeah, it, it, the, the, the roadshow uh, is a way of us engaging sort of directly with our members and, and non-members of our association, of course. Uh, just all SMEs are invited to these uh, events. And of course, during lockdown, we weren't able to do them, so we had to move them online, but it's great to be back on the road. Um, and it's really just to um, present sort of what we're representing the SMEs at, you know, government level. What are the key, key issues for SMEs in doing business? In Ireland, uh, in a fair and uh, you know cost-effective way. So, you know, we're in the pre-budget submission cycle right now. Um, we met with the Department of Enterprise and Trade, or I didn't, but Neil, my colleague Neil McDonald, the CEO, met with the Department of Enterprise and Trade last week. Um, you know, with some key focuses, so key focus on pro-business taxation policies, cost of housing is a major issue, mm. public uh, sector spending, that sort of thing. And I, I, I take it that you're in listening mode as much as anything else, a uh, good chance for people to network, uh, and there will be a uh, spotlight on statutory sick pay. Yes, um, our HR team here um, is uh, uh, run by two, two ladies here, Sinead and Michelle. Sinead will be presenting the HR policy updates, so the statutory sick pay uh, which has been recently introduced and it's new to a lot of um, uh, to, to the SME world and therefore hand-holding them through the legislation changes I think is, uh, is very important for them to understand sort of what their responsibilities are with this new legislation. Okay, I think there'll be a lot of interest as well in Brona Conlon's presentation uh, Brona from Listoke Distillery uh, of course. Uh, it starts at 9 o'clock in uh, the Glenside uh, tomorrow uh, and admission is free isn't it if people want to come along? get a cup of coffee and a pastry so do come along um it'll be great to see as many people there as possible um i'll obviously be uh, talking about the learning and development side of things how we're supporting businesses do things better manage their people better grow their businesses those sort of programs that we run throughout the year um so there's lots to get through um it only runs for about an hour and a half um but uh, i think uh, everyone attending will find it very very informative Okay, thank you indeed. Adam Weatherly, Learning and Development Manager with ISME, the Roadshow at the Glenside Hotel uh, tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Some comments uh, before the headlines. Ellen says, you would think the Labour Party cared about people being evicted. It's the same party who had Joan Burton opening a food bank surrounded by Gardaí. They'll never be trusted again, says Ellen. Uh, some comments similar to that coming to us uh, as well. Uh, somebody here is saying uh, talk is cheap. This is Paul. He says, does Ivana Bakic, uh think uh, that the country forgot all of the welfare cuts that Labour stood over last time that they were in coalition? Talk is cheap. Paddy Duffy says, where the hell are these elusive 500,000 vacant homes uh, that they're going to retrofit over the next 10 years. Cloud Cuckoo comes to mind, he says. Pat McDade calling into question uh, my pronunciation of the Labour leader's uh, name. He says it's Bachik rather than Bakich. Uh, OK, Pat, take you at your word. Thank you indeed if you've been in touch. If you've not been in touch, if you'd like to make a comment on the programme, our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Amnesty International is publishing its annual report on human rights uh, today, an annual assessment of human rights uh, around uh, the world and there is much to be concerned about quite obviously. Indeed, there's much to be concerned uh, about at home with uh, the report finding Ireland wanting in key areas when it comes to human rights. Let's speak to Fiona Crowley, who's Amnesty International Ireland's Interim Director for Human Rights. A very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Maybe you talk through some of the concerns you have about human rights in this country. And there's particular concern, it seems, for the safety of sex workers and the disregard, uh, as you put it, for those people, which is putting them at risk. Yes, uh, good morning to you and your listeners, Michael. Thank you for having us on this important day. Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, it's only right that in our annual report we would look at the human rights record of almost all the countries in the world, including Ireland. And in respect of Ireland, yes, one of our most serious concerns is, as you say, for the welfare and safety of sex workers here. Uh, Research that we published last year showed that a 2017 law introduced by the then government uh, criminalised the purchase of sex, and it has actually had the opposite effect to what the government claimed at the time. So our research shows that it's put sex workers at even higher risk of abuse and violence from clients and from members of the public, and in fact from Gardaí, um, and far less able to seek help from or trust the Gardaí. Because so, it's no longer illegal to sell sex, but it is illegal to buy sex. Why does that put sex workers at risk? Well, in fact, it was never illegal to sell sex. That's a bit of a, a myth. Um, rather, um, sex workers were, were not, not... It was illegal to solicit clients. But um, the, the, the introduction of the purchase of sex, was, or the, uh, banning the purchase of sex, was on, on the theoretical basis that it would mean that there would be no more sex buyers and therefore there would be no more sex work. Um, so uh, how that would in any way keep a roof over the, the, the heads of sex workers or keep food on the table was always um, in question. And we and others did flag at the time that it would not in any way um, help sex workers, but put them into increased risk of violence. So our research um, interviewing um, sex workers uh, has, has demonstrated that. And in fact, very important research by the University of Limerick back in your, in your neck of the woods, uh, published in August of last year. Um, they spoke with uh, street-based sex workers in Dublin and Limerick who are probably the most marginalised and most at a risk of abuse. And they reported this too, and also that it has left their uh, um, relationships with, with the Gardaí in tatters, and they are actually being harassed by the guards in order for the guards to find clients to actually prosecute. Is that uh, because the laws are not being policed as intended, uh, because uh, the legislation was based on what I believe was a successful model in Sweden, was it not? Well, I mean, it, it's it's called the Nordic model, but but um, I mean, it's it's a model that is based on yes, uh, the criminalisation of the purchase of sex, but also putting in place supports and services for sex workers. That didn't happen in the in the, the, the states where it was introduced, but but it's overwhelmingly not the case that that um, the purchase of criminalising the purchase of sex has had the, um, the the claimed impact. So there is no evidence to suggest that model has worked anywhere in the world. And in fact, Amnesty's own research in places like Norway has demonstrated the reverse. So here in Ireland, because Ireland had only recently introduced this so-called model, uh, we decided that we would look to, to talk directly to sex workers themselves to find out what is actually helping them. And um, and they said this particular law is, is not. Right. And you feel sex workers can't trust Gardaí and that because of the laws as uh, as they stand, they're put at the risk of abuse, violence, including rape. Uh, what's the solution to that? Is it to legalise prostitution? 
Well, I mean, firstly, I mean, it, 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 I should clarify that in addition to criminalising the purchase of sex, the, the, the government didn't actually um, repeal any offences of the other offences that were targeting sex workers. So, for instance, not many people realise that sex workers have been arrested and, in fact, prosecuted and put in jail for so-called brothel keeping. If two or more sex workers work together for safety, that's a brothel in, in law and they have been um, arrested and prosecuted. So um, in, in every way, their, their lives are criminalised. So yes, um, I mean, we don't call for legalisation. That's a different thing, which we won't get into here. What we call for is that um, the cons- consensual exchange of adult sexual services should be decriminalised. Criminalising it, it at all causes harm. And if, 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 if what the government is actually trying to do is to ensure that no one has to engage in sex work because they have no other opportunities, well then... Um, engage in meaningful solutions. The criminal law is no substitute. Um, it, it, the criminal law is no solution to uh, economic exclusion or social marginalisation that leads some people into sex work and it absolutely makes sex work far, far less safe. Okay, so to decriminalise uh, at a minimum and what you do after that, whether you legalise or, or, or not, uh, is a decision that uh, the government or the people of the country, I suppose, would have to take. Indeed, indeed. I mean, and, a, and another major concern that we have is there is um, this conflation of sex work, which is consensual, and uh, exploitation or trafficking. So when you lump them all together, um, that does not work. So, of course, we would also um, urge that the, 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 the police and, and the prosecutorial services uh, rigorously pursue, pursue those who are engaged in ex- sexual exploitation and trafficking. Mm. Um, to, to go after um, the, 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 the purchase of consensual adult sex simply just takes resources, uh, policing and otherwise, away from the priorities and leads to the wrong people being targeted, that is sex workers. Right. Go after, the, go after the, the traffickers and exploiters instead. But the concern is <laughs> that uh, because the traffickers and exploiters are there, uh, if you go after them, uh, you may not be successful uh, in um, bringing them to justice uh, and that will mean a continuation of the situation, which is that people are forced into prostitution which is quite often the case, is it not? Well, when you say, if somebody's forced into prostitution, you're talking about like coercion, which is not sex work. That is exploitation and trafficking. If you were saying that people are forced into sex work because they lack other economic opportunity, then criminalising them and their buyers is not going to work. So what instead the government is going to have to do is take the hard road, which is towards ensuring that, that sex workers have dedicated services, that they have sex worker-led organisations that are able to help them to, to, to access the, um, the, the supports and services that they need. If the government is serious about, about wanting people to have choices, then obviously it needs to do things like solve the housing crisis. That was the number one reason that sex workers that we spoke with said why they're engaging in sex work. They simply could not afford to keep a roof over their head otherwise. So these are, this is the long game. But, but, but engaging sort of like in some sort of rhetoric that, you know, a criminal law is somehow going to solve the situation and that there'll be no more sex work is not only um, mythical but dangerous. Amnesty International Ireland concerned as well about how the government here has responded uh, to... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The, the abuse of women and children in mother and baby homes. Well, yes, I mean, we have been calling um, on Ireland to do the right thing and, and you know, sort of vindicate the, the, the you know, the right to truth, justice and reparation for the, the tens of thousands of women and children who went through those homes and who experienced such horrific abuses. So, I mean, this has been going on since the, even the beginning of the Commission of Investigation into this issue. We've seen that, the, you know, obviously the report that came out of that commission was, was so far from, from the truth of what happened and that it was an insult. But I guess in reference to what happened last year, uh, we just saw that, the, you know, that the final insult was um, that the government put in place an arbitrary requirement, a cruel and arbitrary requirement of six months residence in, the, in these institutions for any of those people to qualify for redress. Mm, yeah, very few people have been able to make sense of that. Yes, it, Go- it makes no sense at all. And if it's for cost-saving reasons, what, like that's, that's, that's grotesquely offensive, but also a violation of their human rights. Okay. Uh, you're concerned uh, as well uh, about how people who underwent some physiotomies uh, have uh, been treated and uh, you're looking for an investigation into that medical childbirth practice. Indeed, indeed. And again, I mean, like, you know, this is something that's been aired for years, but I guess what was news last year was that the United Nations uh, again called for this. It called for, for um, this, this to be properly investigated, but also that the, the women who went through this, this horrific practice uh, without their consent uh, were, were, were provided with effective remedies. Not many people realised that, that women were fa- faced with a, a Sophie's choice to either accept a pitiful um, government money um, and waive their rights to take any other legal action or just to continue as they are. So, yes, the United Nations again called in Ireland to, 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 um, to do the right thing in these cases, and we very much hope the government will listen this time around. Okay, the political agenda will be dominated once again this week uh, by issues relating to housing. I I take it Amnesty International Ireland would be disappointed if that wasn't the case. Well, I mean, I, I mean, like we've been saying for years that um, that you know the, the housing crisis in Ireland would become a, a, like a, a human rights crisis, and, and that manifestly is the case. You know, it's, it's cutting across every social group. Um, we, we see, you know, again, as I said, it's one of the reasons why people are entering into sex work. But also, we see, you know, like appallingly, um, the, you know, the people arriving here on our shores looking for protection, sleeping rough on the streets, and the homelessness services are are, 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 are stretched to breaking point. So, I mean, obviously. I mean, people have a human right to housing in international law. They just don't have one in domestic law. Um, in our constitution, we have a, a right to private property, which is fine. But that in and of itself just means that governments have claimed to have been hamstrung in the tor- sorts of solutions they couldn't put in place. So what we've been asking for for, oh, well, over 12 years now is um, a constitutional right to housing. And that doesn't mean a right to free house. It means that everyone has a right to um, adequate, affordable and secure housing. 
Okay, talk to me about facial recognition technology. Anecdotally, I would think that there's huge support for the Gardaí being given this technology, but you don't believe it should be made available to them. Well, well, it's not just us. I mean, there's a, you know, a large group of experts and, and, um, and non-governmental organisations um, in Ireland and abroad that, that have demonstrated the huge risks around this technology. Um, when we say technology, I mean, it, it sounds an awful lot better than it actually is in practice. It, it's quite rudimentary in some places and some ways. And actually, there's a huge failure of this technology to, to um, be able to distinguish um, sort of the, the, the facial characteristics, particularly of minority ethnic groups. So huge risk of facial, uh, facial recognition technology um, identifying the wrong culprits. But, but essentially, I mean, it's a threat to all of our privacy rights. Um, it, it, the, the plans are to allow Gardaí to use this technology in public spaces. Um, and this sort of mass surveillance technology poses huge risks to our own privacy. We don't know what will happen with the data. Um, but, um, but also, most significantly, um, as, the, for instance, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties has repeatedly pointed out, no convincing case whatsoever has been made that the Gardaí actually need this technology. Okay, Fiona, we have to leave it there, but thank you for talking to us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. Fiona Crowley, Amnesty International Ireland's Interim Director for Human Rights. Uh, The annual Amnesty International report is published today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we're going to discuss uh, the pros and cons of undergrounding or overgrounding uh, the North South Interconnector. We're joined uh, by Thomas Byrne, Finnefall TD for Meath East and uh, Minister for State. Uh, we're due also to be joined by Patrick Tobin, AIN2 TD. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if that's going to happen because we're not making the connection with Patrick Tobin just at the minute. Maybe that will change. But good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining joining us on the programme today. Uh, On Tuesday, the government appears to have accepted uh, the report uh, that uh, it has published now uh, on the interconnector and it's found that uh, going underground will not provide the reliability and stability that is required and furthermore, the savings and benefits to the consumer would be substantially less. The government in its statement said that the project has planning permission north and south of the border and it's time now to enter the construction phase that the project should be completed by 2026. What's your position on this now? Do you accept the decision of the, of the government? The, gov- the government has made a decision. I mean, our, our commitment in the, in the election was that we would get a review. As you know, that took some time and that wasn't initially agreed to by government partners. We did get the review uh, eventually. And the review, unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, has come up and said that actually all of the previous... Um, findings basically um, hold water and are basically still the same. Uh, and I think that's a pity. Uh, I'm somebody who always wanted underground. By the way, we didn't commit to undergrounding it simply because all the reviews up to then had said that really it kind of could be done, but not not in the way that we would we would all like, and in a way that will work properly. And this we we wanted another review to check that and other things as well. Uh, this is the review that the, the, the Minister agreed to and it has basically said that the findings before were the same and that's that's the difficulty that I think anybody faces when trying to navigate this particular issue. Right, that's being questioned uh, by uh, Shane Castles amongst others uh, who say that's not what the report is saying uh, and that anybody who suggests that uh, hasn't read the report or they're just simply wrong or trying to hoodwink us. Well, look, I mean, the report doesn't say that it can't be done underground. It says it technically can be done underground, this HVDC, uh, but that the cost is obviously higher uh, and 
Um, it wouldn't apparently wouldn't provide benefits to the local communities along the way. Like if a big factory was to open up somewhere along the way in a in a, in a regional area, uh, that wouldn't be possible uh, with underground in terms of a new connection into that particular grid, and it would be possible overground. I don't think this, this is an, something that any of us want. Um, it's been and quite frankly, it's been on the agenda since at least 2007. Uh, it's now 16 years later, and you know I'll, I'll, I'll certainly believe it when I see it. Mm. But as far as you're concerned, as things stand, the decision has been made. Uh, it's not it's not the decision you would ha- have liked to have seen being made, but you accept the decision. Well, that's, that's basically my position. I'm not sure that anybody can sort of navigate a path forward based on the information that we have at the moment. If anyone has any suggestions, then come to us. But I, I don't see the path there. I mean, this thing has been reviewed to the nth degree. I think, I think everybody agrees that we need this new interconnection. Uh, we've always needed that. Now, you know, I'll be quite honest, on, on issues of energy security, I would have scoffed at that somewhat, you know, some time ago because we were told we'd have problems with lights and, and domestic electricity supply by 2010, 2011, if this wasn't built, that didn't happen. Um, but quite frankly, uh, I think this is in a different context now. That's that's just the reality that, that, that we're in at the moment, and that is certainly a factor now. And it's not something that I would have played up. In fact, I played it down um, some years ago. Do you believe that people voted for you on the basis that they believed that you and Fianna Fall would have been able to deliver this project underground? No, the very clear commitment we gave in the election was that we would do a review of it. Mm. But do you believe that's people the, voted for you on that basis? Well, that's the commitment that we gave, Michael. But, but, I mean, we didn't say, I didn't say anything else. I didn't go on your show and say, I mean, I, I have a personal preference as to what I'd like to see yeah. happening. But the party commitment was very clear that we wanted a review to take place. Okay. Uh, that review, it was some with some difficulty, as mm. you know, uh, and you interviewed me about that before. Right. Uh, it did happen. Okay, well, let me put it to you the other way. I believe that some people would have voted for you on the basis that Fianna Fáil would have delivered this project underground. Uh, do you believe that's wrong? I, I think it is wrong because I know the commitment that we gave at the time was to have a review. Okay. And then you go into, then you go into coalition with other parties uh, who don't always share our views. And, you know, we, okay, didn't get the review, Castle, frankly, Shane, we didn't get the review that we'd like. Right, Shane Castles is blaming the Green Party. Is he right? Look, I mean... We can blame anyone we like, but I mean, at the end of the day, governments have to take responsibility collectively for decisions that we take. So, so that's 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 a fact. I mean, it is a fact also that the Green Party are in that particular ministry, uh, and they want to go ahead with this. Mm. Um, but no, I'm not going to I'm not going to lay the blame on anyone's door. The government takes collective responsibilities together. Okay. Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the decision was made on Tuesday. We asked Airgrid to, to talk to us on Wednesday. That didn't happen. They weren't available on Thursday. They weren't available on Friday aren't available yesterday, aren't available today. Uh, but we are joined now by Peter Tobin, Hang Tu, leader and founder of TD from Me the West. Um, the minister there said, if anybody has any suggestions, bring them forward. Have you any suggestions? Yeah, I would suggest that the government make a decision uh, on behalf of the people of Mees uh, to underground this project. Uh, I would suggest that the government take responsibility for the making of decisions. I would suggest that the government isn't a passenger in a bus or a bystander commentating on this issue, that the government is in power, uh, Airgrid is not in power. I would suggest that if you're going to carry out a review of the North-South Interconnector, that you would carry it out on the same basis as the connector uh, connecting Kildare and Meath was done. So in other words, you would include a full feasibility study, a full cost-benefit analysis of the cost to, to the fall in price of housing, farms, the equine industry, um, uh, agriculture, 
tourism, that you would include all the costs uh, that that entails. And, you know, then you would get actually a fair assessment of what uh, the cost benefit is. And that's the kind of review you wanted, Minister. You said you didn't get the review you wanted, but that is exactly what you wanted to look at it in the round. Well, I'm very nervous about people looking for cost-benefit analysis because the reality is, um, and all of the reports show this, that I think and everyone agrees, the cost of undergrounding is much more expensive than overgrounding. So if you're talking about looking for a cost-benefit analysis, I think you're, you, know, you should be careful what you wish for um, because it already costs a lot more to do underground. We know that. I think everybody accepts that. Uh, and that is a problem then because if the cost-benefit analysis, if you look for it and then it comes back the wrong way, what do you say there? At some point, uh, a decision has to be taken, having looked at all the evidence and all of the all of the views. I'm not sure. Can that be argued, Patrick Tobin? Yeah. So, so in other words, um, what has been done so far is there has been a 2018 report, and this current report has basically uh, assessed the uh, statements and the uh, the uh, results of that report. So it's been very, very narrow. Um, it hasn't included the full cost benefit analysis. Um, so all the issues that I spoke about there have not been factored into the cost of this. They have been factored into the cost of other projects that are being undergrounded uh, by Airgrid and, and notably the Mead Kildare uh, interconnector. And, you know, and, and <laughs> if you determine that the terms of reference of a, a review is not going to take in the full cost, well, then, of course, the result is going to come out uh, in the manner that it has. And, you know, what, what we've had is in fairness, Thomas Byrne and other Fianna Fáil politicians go to public meetings where there's 2,000 people in attendance, you know, and say that he wants this undergrounded. And, you know, that was the policy of Fianna Fáil um, over, over the last 15 years, especially when they're in opposition. But it seems to be that they're neutered when they get into government. And that's the real frustration when it comes to people uh, in relation to this. OK, Minister, to respond. Look, I, I'd, say, I'd say the opposite, in fact. I mean, the, the, the commitment that we gave before the election was to review it. I mean, we all have our personal preferences that the thing be undergrounded. I'm not denying that. But the political commitment we gave was to have a review. Okay. Because we saw all of the other reports which said about the cost of it and the technical difficulties as well uh, about undergrounding it. We succeeded in negotiating with our government partners to have that review. Uh, it happened. Um, and it doesn't really change the why, position. Why didn't you agree to um, uh, overground it in 2018? We, we didn't. We didn't believe that the review at that time uh, sufficiently addressed the issues that were raised by the public. But this is just a review of that review, is it? I, I know. I so, know. So why, 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 why are you changing your mind? I'm, I, well, I'm not changing my mind in in the sense that we get so much support in the election. We yeah. went to government with other parties. But we there was a review, in, a review in 2018 who, and you got, said... Who by, the way, who, by the way, got votes in those areas as well, no, who, have different, who okay. have different views to us. But about the north-south interconnector. But in 2018, you said the review was wrong. Now you're saying a review of that review is right. It's basically the same thing five years later. Well, we've got it checked by international experts. And the international experts have come back and said to us, no, this is actually fine. We've done that. Uh, we'd like, we absolutely, I would have liked the review to be more comprehensive and raise other issues. But fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're in government, Pallet, and you're not, and you, you opted out of government. You'll never be able to implement any of your policies. But Thomas, this, this idea that we have personal preferences, and I'd like to see this happen, and nobody elects you on your personal preferences. Yeah, they elected me on the political commitment that I gave, which was have a review, and we had the review. People elect you on the basis of you fulfilling what you say you're going to fulfill. Yes, and we've done that. 
No, Thomas, in, in fairness, um, anybody that was at those meetings will be left in no doubt um, that you were... The commitment that we gave was to have a review. That is what we had, to have an international review. We had international people on it. It didn't go quite as far as we wanted, but that is the political commitment that we gave. Why did you bother? Why did it go as far as you wanted, Thomas? Like, you're in government. Why didn't include a full cost-benefit analysis? Why was it that the the thousands of families that are living along the cartilage of this from Meath, Cavan, Monaghan, Armand, Tyrone are going to have their their, their homes uh, massively fall in price. Why didn't you include that in, in, in the review? Why is it that farmers and, and, and equine uh, and, and studs uh, and tourism and the massive cost that that will have in those sectors, why wasn't that included in the review? The idea that this is some kind of yellow pack review that had some of the information involved, had others not involved, is just not good enough for the thousands of people who are materially affected, significantly financially affected by this. You know, the, the idea that we will provide a review, but, you know, it's not going to really take in everything. It's going to maybe take in some things. And, you know, we're the government. We'd like to have more in it, but sure, you know, we're going to shrug our shoulders and say, well, what can we do about it? Okay, like, that's well, not good enough. All right, we have both sides of that argument. Now, Thomas Byrne, do you believe that this project will be realised? Will farmers uh, allow Airgrid or ESB onto their land? Look, I mean, as I said earlier, I'll believe this when I see it. If it's gone on so long, um, and I, you know, had, had they undergrounded it, maybe it would have been built a long, long time ago. I think at the start, it probably technically could not have been undergrounded. The technology definitely changed at the early part of this. But as far as I can see, looking at these reports, it hasn't changed enough uh, for us to be able to do this. Do you know benefit. your constituents as well as anybody, if not better yeah. than most? Do you, know, do you believe that? Do you believe that this is for me? And some of these landowners voted for Fine Gael, some voted for the Greens. Yeah, they both had nuances on this policy. I know, we're in government together. Do you, do you believe that there's going to be huge resistance to this, that they will be prohibited from entering land, that there'll be blockades? Look, we'll, 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 we'll wait and see. I mean, the projects have been dealt with over the years by various state agencies using powers that they have and negotiating skills that they so, have. Let's so, just see. So you've no opinion on it? You don't, you, well, you, you don't really envisage that situation? Well, I mean, we've had 15 years to think about it. Well, I mean, I'm not going to get into the, 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 the situation that somebody else spoke about, about civil unrest and all that. I'm not going to go there. I don't think that it's appropriate to talk about that. I mean, we have legal processes in mm. the country. Well, we are governed by the rule of law. This has gone to well, the, ne- I, I, the Supreme Well, I Court. think the next question is the one that we wanted to put to Aircrid, which is, will they call the guards to enforce these orders uh, if it comes to that and have people arrested? What do you think is going to happen, Patrick Tobin? Are we going to see a situation like that? Well, first of all, I just want to say that these farmers and families are law-abiding citizens. Citizens, You couldn't get a more law-abiding group of people in, in the country. And yet now, because of Fianna Fáil's government, uh, they are mandating Airgrid to go into conflict directly with those people. Those people, 97% of, of, of the farmers on the, along the route, have said that they don't want Airgrid people on their land. Now, either through legal means, um, or, or whatever, Airgrid are going to seek to get on their land, which only means conflict. And, and they'll be you know, writing checks, and some people will accept them. Uh, some people will feel they have to accept them um, because they'll be made an offer that they can't refuse given their circumstances, and that's going to lead to great division, if nothing else. It will. It will lead. We've seen this happen in other parts of the country at other issues where we have communities radically divided, and they can be divided for years and years as a result of. You know, some people, because of the financial circumstance that they're in, accepting checks. Uh, and, you know, I, I believe most, the majority of the farmers won't. 
Um, I believe people are steadfast against this. And, and I actually think that the whole process the government has embarked in has actually delayed the delivery of this infrastructure for the last 15 years anyways. Like Airgrid told us a while ago that it costs €30 million Euros every year this is delayed. And the process that they have uh, pursued has delayed this. So, you know, I would ask for the government at this stage to actually govern, to actually make policy and, um, and direct Airgrid to underground this project and to make sure we don't have massive division, massive conflict in the heart of our county. There's a, a, a real uh, prospect, Thomas Byrne, is there not, that this is going to cost Fianna Fáil seats across the three counties? Look, I mean, being a government is always going to cost political party seats, but I, but I just want to say that I, I think the idea that we're talking about conflict or Gardaí or anything like that, I think is completely wrong. Why? I think we're, well, I, I think it's completely wrong. Why? Because it, raise, mean, it's, raising the ante already. But sure, that's, um, that, that's obvious. That's, I mean, it's not wrong. It's realistic. How is that obvious? I mean, there's been absolutely no experience of that whatsoever. People have been absolutely... Because Airgrid said that they will have the right to enter people's land, even if people say that they don't no, want nobody, to nobody, nobody has threatened uh, to call the Gardaí. Airgrid Air have said that right ESB... ESB will have the right to enter people's land to construct ESB pylons. Have had, have had those rights since the 1920s. Exactly. There's nothing new or novel about but that, that But that's the point. And if people resist it, uh, well then, there's a problem. Uh, well, and the guards... threatened? I mean, I, I, look, people don't want this. That's absolutely clear. I don't particularly want it either. And do you think that they're going to allow it to happen, that they're going to allow the ESB to come onto the land and construct pylons? Because if they don't, then you're uh, into exactly that situation. And it's foolish, to my mind, not to contemplate it. And in making this decision, it was foolish. It was foolish. It was foolish. Foolish, foolish of the government. Foolish of the government to ignore or such a possibility? I, I, look, I think it's absolutely foolish of you on the radio to be raising that as a possibility at this particular juncture because nobody has threatened that on either side. All right. Do you agree with that, Peter Toby? Well, if you bring this nat- to its natural conclusion, if you have one force, one group, one uh, part of government saying that they will go on someone's land and another uh, group, the, the people of Mead, saying that they won't allow that to happen, well, obviously there's a conflict at the heart of the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael plans. Like even Regina Doherty at one stage said she was going to stand shoulder to shoulder with farmers on the, the land in Mead um, to stop this happening. You know what I mean? So like Thomas knows right well the outcome of, of government policy is the conflict uh, on land and it's heartbreaking to see it because these are people who just want to get on well uh, with their neighbours, they want to get on well with their communities and they want to abide by the law and now they're being pushed into an, a shocking situation, bullied I would say by the government into a shocking situation where the only way that they can defend um, their, their property and their, their, their livelihoods in many ways is to come into conflict with the Gardaí. And, you know, okay. I would like to, to, to see... Well, I want to give the Minister a chance to respond. I'm not responding to that, Michael, because to get into that kind of debate using language like conflict with the Gardaí, I mean, it's bringing ridicule to the campaign but and that the honest, the, decent, law-abiding people. Do you want to, to respond to the accusation that the government has bullied the no, people? No, I'm, I'm not, because the language they're using is just, I think, totally inappropriate. All right. Well, here, here, here's the deal, right? You're acting without the consent of the greater part of the people living here. They have not given consent to Airgrid. Okay, do you want to respond to that, Minister? No, I, I, just think, I just think the language has gone down a rabbit hole here that we shouldn't really get, we shouldn't engage in. Okay, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Uh, thank you both. Uh, it's a conversation I'm sure that is far from over. Thank you both uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Indeed, we'll uh, continue that conversation tomorrow with members of uh, the IFA. Our thanks this morning, though, to Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East and uh, Minister of State, Peter Tobin, 
uh, aimed to TD for Midwestern founder and leader of his party. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I think most of us are probably familiar with uh, the annual show Racism, uh, the Red Card campaign. The campaign has been taken over this year by the Immigrant Council of Ireland. And this year we're being asked to wear red f- uh, to uh, combat racism. Let's uh, speak uh, to Philippe Lopez, who's the Communications and Engagement Coordinator with uh, the Immigrant Council. Good morning to you, Philippe, and thanks for joining us on the programme. Uh, the Wear Red Day is to take place uh, this Friday, and you're asking schools and indeed workplaces to participate. Exactly. Well, good morning, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, the Wear Red Day is an um, anti-racism initiative where schools business and community groups are encouraged to join uh you know together an initiative against racism that the, the immigrant council of ireland has been managing this this program yes okay uh, and uh, what's the idea of wearing red well the the the, the, the whole idea uh, about red is because it, it comes from the program the show the racism the red card which started mainly um, you know, to engaging in sports places and, uh, you know, in clubs and uh, GAAs and rugby's and football associations and things like that. So that's kind of the reason, you know, to show the red, the red card when you, you know, hmm. you drop the ball and you have to go out. So it's like, it's more like a kind of paraphrase of, of yeah, exactly, the red color. And it's a strong color which represents, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, yeah, the, the idea against racism and mm. everything. Okay, I, I just wonder if uh, there's a, an argument that you're preaching to the converted to some degree and that uh, people who do wear red on Friday will already be anti-racist, but is it a case of them showing their colours, if you like, and demonstrating uh, to other people that they're against racism and perhaps uh, that will result in influencing the way people think? Sorry, I, just, I didn't understand your question. You mean because of the caller? That's what you mean. I'm yeah, the peop- other people will see uh, that there are so many people who are opposed to racism. Well, we, we have been engaging different campaigns and different programs uh, with different, you know, and partnering with different organizations. Uh, and I think the red is just, a, uh, is just, uh, you know, a definition of of how this started by showing the red card, uh, sh- showing the racism, the red card. Mm-hmm. That's really much what it is. So it, it hasn't. Yeah, it's just like a day that if schools and workplaces are joining together, you know, it, it's a kind of like a, a full impact of the message. Mm, yeah, sure. I, I'm not getting too hung up on the colour. I just mean, uh, are you asking people to demonstrate how they feel? Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. It is important to demonstrate how they feel. And especially, you know, and it is important as well to stand up to stand up against racism. And I think the, 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 call, the red colour is just a really... Um, strong color, and by mm-hmm. wearing red, people are showing their brave colors in support of diversity, and they talk about stand against racism. Okay, we're seeing a, a rise in popularity for the far right, uh, and indeed with that, uh, more reports of racism. Uh, very hard uh, to understand uh, in this country. We're discussing how for. Uh, I don't know, centuries, I I suppose, uh, the Irish people were subjected to to racism uh, by the English predominantly uh, and very hard to believe now that we've turned it into a a racist country. We were discussing that recently on the programme. But uh, how widespread is it, do you think? Uh, Is it something uh, that uh, people from different countries, of different skin colours, of different ethnic backgrounds uh, experience regularly in this country? 
Well, definitely. I think that is, you know, I think for years, maybe the, the, the Irish society, and I'm, I'm not necessarily speaking about Irish people, I'm saying who lives in Ireland, did you believe that Ireland, you know, was, didn't have racism? And myself, personally, I'm, I'm originally from Brazil. I came here about 11 years ago. And uh, I, I, I didn't believe that. And I, unfortunately, I came to account that racism is present and we see violence and, and things like that. And I, I think the, the reason why those campaigns are extremely important is to show that, unfortunately, there is racism in Ireland. As already pointed, Irish people went through uh, many, many, for many, many years a lot of challenges. And uh, they experienced racism in countries like, as you said, in England and, uh, mm. and uh, in America during, you know, after the famine when a lot of millions of Irish people had to leave the country. So I think for, for many years, the, the, the Ireland didn't believe that racism existed, and it does exist, unfortunately, and affects uh, communities and affects migrants and affects, you know, everybody. So I think uh, that's exactly the reason that this campaign, uh, this day, the Red Red Day, is extremely important for this matter. And why is it, do you think, that people are, are racist? Do they really think that they are superior to other people? That... <laughs> Well, I, I, I genuinely don't think that. I think it's just a lack of information. Uh, and getting to know a little bit more uh, about, you know, racism, about migration and things like that. I, you pointed that there is a, a rise of the far right. And uh, I, 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 I not necessarily acknowledge that as a rise. I think it's just people expressing their opinions and they are entitled to do so. But this should come with respect, equal respect for everybody, despite, regardless of the color, regardless of where they come from, regardless of the visa status. You know, I think that it's like, in the end of the day, we are all humans and we deserve to be respected uh, equally. Mm. Uh, do you think that young people uh, are, are more inclined to be racist than older people? Because those of us who are a bit older can remember uh, how we were put down and called stupid paddies for years. Uh, I, I'm not sure if if it's young people are more inclined to be. Obviously, with the you know with social media available and all the information on social media available, I think the information can be you can lose a bit of the, the main core of the information that you are consuming uh, on social media. So I believe that it's not about young people. I think it's 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 uh, it's. Uh, it's a situation that our society are facing, not just in Ireland, unfortunately. Uh, it's everywhere. Uh, and I, I just think that the Red Red Day and the programs and activities that we are proposing, yes, tackling schools and the workplaces. And uh, yes, and I think in order to, to think uh, a better future for, for the entire world, for our society, it's important to focus on, on, on children, on, on young people, because they are the ones that will be leading and will be carrying all, this informa- all the information necessarily to go against racism. Mm. And are young people mixing across the races? You would hope they are, because, uh, it, I mean, when uh, I was growing up, uh, you, you never saw somebody of a, a different colour. I mean, I think there was one black man in the country called Phil Linnet, uh, and uh, you know, it's it was rare and something very strange and foreign to people of my generation. But now uh, in school, people are mixing together or they should be mixing together all of the time. Or is that the case? Well, as you, as you just said, you know, that, that, that's the reality we are living in this country, in this amazing and beautiful and welcoming country. Um, I myself, I came here 11 years ago and, uh, you know, I, I start seeing 
different types of people, a really cosmopolitan country, a really welcoming country. And uh, I still stand next to that. I think the Irish communities are extremely welcoming, are extremely, you know, uh, yeah, amazing. And I, I get on that, that the, the reason why I decided to stay in this country for so long is because I love this country. I think it's, it's amazing. But at the same time, there is definitely opportunity to, to raise awareness and to tackle those, those particular situations that unfortunately are still happening. Uh, and uh, yes, I, 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 I heard your point. I have Irish friends that, you know, that was born in Dublin or outside of Dublin mm. that, that they didn't see back in the day. But that's not the reality anymore, which means that there is a strong, there is an amazing opportunity here to grow and to understand each other, to learn from each other through through those communities that are coming to Ireland, that are living already in Ireland. So, yeah. Yeah, I always think uh, racism uh, is rooted in fear, uh, in suspicion, uh, in lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, uh, lack of uh, interaction uh, with people, and that when people come together and start to talk to each other, it's like... Uh, the Protestants and the Catholics in Northern Ireland, or if you prefer, the Nationalists and uh, the Unionists in Northern Ireland, uh, generally speaking, they were trying to kill each other for 40 years. Uh, but they were very similar uh, because uh, they were uh, from working class areas, uh, just happened to be on either side of uh, the Peace Walls, uh, who uh, really had the same challenges in life. And when they came together, they realised that there were so many things that were were similar between them. That's true, and I, I, I have been Belfast. I have I have reported from Belfast when I was working as a journalist, and uh, definitely that there is a lot of nuances uh, in that history. Unfortunately, you know, after after the independence and then during the troubles and mm. everything, and uh, with you know this idea of the, the British Empire over over North Ireland and etc. Definitely, that that is different nuances. But I think what what the organi- what the immigrants come of Ireland are trying to put in place are mechanisms and the tools that will allow people to access information and then to learn and then to tackle racism. I think that's pretty much uh, what we are aiming for. Okay, well, Wear Red Day to help combat racism is this Friday. We'll ask everybody to wear red on Friday, Philippe. Uh, before you go, though, can I ask you, uh, why is Brazil, uh, or why, Brazil, why, why are Brazilians so attracted to Ireland? There's a, a lot of Brazilians, there's an, an incredible amount of Brazilians in Drada, for example. Uh, why is this a popular destination? Well, uh, that, <laughs> well, I think that that is a lot of a lot of reasons. I think the main one is the access to really good education. Brazilians coming here to learn English, to go to college, to go to you know get masters and PhDs. So it's, a, it's an amazing uh, country that offers education uh, and also job opportunities. So I think it's a combination of factors. You know, uh, I also believe in a personal level that Irish people and Brazilian people are really similar. Yeah. I think we like the crack, we mm. like the laugh, yeah, yeah. we like the dance, we like the music, we like the drinks. And I think in general, we share really similar. And also, I think we also share a really similar history, Michael. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, Ireland went through uh, occupation of England and, uh, you know, and uh, colonization of English, of the English is for so many years, the same way that Brazilians experienced that with the Portuguese. And I think somehow we relate to that. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to keep our culture vibrating, trying to, you know, uh, 
our show, our music, our lands and our food and our, you know, everything, our books very and everything. Yeah. So I think yeah, we, yeah. we relate to yeah, that. Yeah. And well, it. you're very welcome. Uh, as you know, most people, the majority of people uh, would feel that way, Philippe. Uh, and uh, before you go, uh, I've been trying to learn your language. Maybe I, I could practice my pigeon Portuguese. Bom dia. Bom dia, Michael. Bom dia. Thank you very much indeed. Philippe Lopez, Communications and Engagement Coordinator with the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Right now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents. Garda, you're investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Noel Lochran of Drogheda Garda Station joins us for this week's report. And thank you for doing so. We're going to begin in Dundalk with a number of robberies. Yes, and um, Garda in Dundalk are anxious to identify a man involved in an attempted robbery from a person outside the dog town on Saturday night last. Uh, a man was walking on Lennon Media Terrace when he was approached by a man who produced a knife and tried to rob him. Luckily, the inter-party uh, was able to run from the scene without injury. Uh, the suspect is described as being in his early 20s and he spoke with a local accent. He was wearing an all-grey tracksuit and distinctive red runner. Uh, anyone who's in the vicinity of Lennon Media Terrace on Saturday night between 9pm and 10pm and may have any information to this incident asked to contact local Gardaí and Dundalk. And in the second incident, uh, Dundalk Gardaí are seeking public assistance in identifying a man involved in a robbery at a pharmacy outside the town on Wednesday last March 22nd. At 7pm, the suspect entered the town park's pharmacy on the Castletown Road, produced a knife and he threatened staff, took some items from the pharmacy and fled the scene. Uh, this suspect was dressed all in black and he had a ski mask covering his face. Uh, thankfully, there was no injuries in this case, but anyone who has any information that could help local authority to identify either of these assailants is asked to contact the Dock Garda Station. Next to the possession of a firearm in Drogheda. Yes, uh, the Dock Gardaí, or sorry, Drogheda Gardaí are looking to identify a man who allegedly produced a firearm in the early hours of Sunday last, March 26th. A man was walking along the cold road when another man approached him and threatened him. Uh, what he believed to be a firearm. Uh, the man then fled the scene and thankfully there was no injuries reported. Uh, we've no definite description at the moment, but anyone who was in that vicinity of the Cord Road between midnight and 1am on Sunday morning and saw anything suspicious is asked to contact the Garda Station. Please do. Uh, to Navin next and uh, another robbery to report on. Yes, Navin Gardaí are seeking the public's assistance following a robbery in the town on Saturday morning last March 25th. Uh, shortly after 11am, a man entered the Gallus filling station on Cannon Row in Navan. Uh, he pushed the till, produced a bread knife and threatened staff with it. Uh, he made away with a small sum of money and he left the store on foot. Uh, our inquiries are still ongoing at the moment and Navan Gardaí are anxious to speak to anyone who was in the Cannon Row area on Saturday morning last between 11am and 12 noon and if en- may have seen any unusual activity to contact them at Navan Station. Okay, a burglary uh, that occurred in Ready Penny to report on next. Yes, uh, Gardy at RD Station are investigating a burglary at a house in Ready Penny over the weekend. It occurred at a house uh, which is under construction sometime between March 23rd and 25th. Uh, there was power tools and generators stolen from a garage, and there was copper pipings and fittings also stolen from the house. Uh, local Gardy are anxious to recover this property. And anyone who may have information related, related to this incident, or indeed may have been offered these goods for sale, 
uh, I've asked to contact RD Guard. We're going to conclude with a, a road traffic collision in Dunboyne that resulted in a serious injury. Yes, Gardy, it's on Shockland Station are investigating following a road traffic collision, collision in Dunboyne on last Sunday week. It occurred on Sunday, 19th of March, at approximately 1.15pm at the junction of the R147 and the R or the L5026 that's in Town in Dunboyne. There was a collision between a car and a motorcyclist at this location, and the motorcyclist was removed from the scene with serious injuries and remains in a critical but stable condition in hospital. Guardia and Shockton are now seeking witnesses to this incident and are asking any person who may have had dash cam footage to contact them at either Dunshockland or Ashbourne Garda Station. Okay, thank you indeed. Garda No Lochran of Drogheda Garda Station. Now, before we go, just quickly some comments. Uh, somebody says, Michael, you're right. Uh, Thomas Byrne did get votes uh, on the understanding that uh, the interconnector would be underground. As Betty Daly says uh, about our defence forces, what do our soldiers do all day? Our Navy is docked in Alexander Basin so the sailors can go home at dinner time. Thank you indeed, Betty. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch today. That's all we have time for though thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.